Well, we focus our attention then this morning on Luke chapter 2 and verse 17. was a man by the name of Kenneth McRae. Ian Murray writes about Kenneth McRae. And uh, Kenneth McRae died in 1964. He was a minister in the Free Church of Scotland for over 50 years. And uh, he said this on his deathbed in the presence of his wife, who reports that these were his words. Uh, He said, Christ's finished work is perfect. He has made all perfect. If I had opportunity to speak, I would emphasize the excellency of his work. Into thine hands I commit my spirit, Lord Jesus. So he says this, and then he lapsed into a coma and died. So his last words were, if I had the opportunity to speak to somebody, I'd tell them about Jesus. That's the thought that's in his mind just before he dies. He has a heart that is like God's. And that's how the shepherds felt after they had seen Jesus. In this passage, which is very familiar, you know they go and see in Bethlehem what had been told them, and they find Mary and Joseph, and they find the baby lying in a manger. And then we read in verse 17, when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. So at that first Christmas, nameless shepherds become the first New Testament evangelists. And their burden then to tell what they knew about Jesus. Their burden to explain to people what they had discovered and what had been revealed to them about the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a burden which we find in the, in the Lord Jesus himself. In chapter 4 of Luke, people want Jesus to stay with them where they are, but this is what he says. He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And that's in verse 43 of Luke chapter 4. As I have opportunity in the providence of the sovereign God, I must tell them about myself and about my kingdom. This is a burden and responsibility that we see not only in the shepherds and preeminently in the Lord Jesus Christ himself, but also in the great forerunner. John feels the same responsibility. In John 3.30, the Baptist says, he must increase and I must decrease. And so John recognizes that same burden and responsibility. This burden and responsibility then is also set upon the church by the head of the church, even the Lord Jesus. And Jesus speaks to Peter 
representing the church. And the Lord Jesus says this in Luke chapter 5 and verse 10. Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. You will be a fisher of men. You are a fisherman by trade, but now your trade is being changed. You're still fishing, but you'll be fishing for men. You'll be rescuing the perishing. That's your responsibility. And Peter represents the whole church of Christ because that's a commission and that's a responsibility given to all Christians. We read in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Jesus says just before he departs now and gives the church its its commission and its responsibility in the world. And he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. You're going to be witnesses for me. The burden of this message then is to tell them, tell everybody, tell the people that you know, tell the people that you work with and tell the people in your family and, and tell the people who come across your path randomly. Tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's your job as a Christian. That's your calling as a saint of God. The shepherds were the first ones to do this. And we must follow suit. Now, you may be shattered to know that I have eight points But perhaps you're comforted to know that they're reasonably short. So let me get to the first one then without any further ado. The first is, tell them about Jesus. Now you understand this, and this is very simple. They made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. The word made known. So they went to tell people. They made known these things. They passed on the information so that people would know what they knew. The information that had been passed on to them, they made known. They told everybody they ran across about this child. And they told them about the child. They told them not uh, their perspective, They told them not their experience. You know, when we saw this, we felt this. No, they told these people about the child. They told these people about the Messiah. They spoke about the Christ. They bore witness to Jesus. And in Acts chapter 1, that's what our Lord Jesus commissions us to do. He says, you're to go into the world, and you're to be a witness about me. You're to go and tell them about me. You're going to stand up in the court of this world, and you're going to testify to everything you know about me. That's the vital thing. We're not commissioned to go and to share our perspectives and to share our pet peeves were commissioned to go and tell them about him. It's uh, in the gospel, or rather in um, in the book of Romans, that we find what the gospel is all about, stated so very clearly by the Apostle Paul. Just take a moment and turn to Romans chapter 1. We won't read these verses, but look at verses 1 to 5, and then verse 16. 
Romans 1, verses 1 to 5, and then also verse 16. And what you find in Romans 1, 1 to 5, is that Paul begins an introduction to the gospel. He calls it the gospel of God. And in truth, Romans 1 to 9 is going to explain what that gospel is all about in great detail. But here, in very uh, succinct way, he says the gospel is about Jesus. And then in verse 16, he says, that gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So that's why we have to tell people about Jesus. Tell them about Jesus because he's the heart and soul of the good news. And that good news is the kind of good news that results in the salvation of those who respond to it in faith. Now, it's important that you live a a consistent Christian life. It's important because your life then adorns the gospel, as Paul says in Titus. But your life will not save people. You can live your consistent life in front of people, and that's really, really important because you don't want to be a hypocrite and undermine the gospel in that way. You want to live a consistent Christian life. But your consistent Christian life is not going to save people. It's not enough just to live consistently in front of them. They need information beyond the information about your life. They need information about Jesus. They need the gospel, which consists of all this information about Jesus Christ. So tell them about Jesus. Paul commits himself to do just that. And he writes to the Corinthians, and he says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you, you Corinthians, except Jesus Christ in him crucified. When I came to you, what did I do? I preached Jesus to you. Martin Lloyd-Jones was determined to tell people about Jesus. And in his first sermon, in his first church, he preached on 1 Corinthians 2.2. I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. In his last sermon in that church, he preached on 1 Corinthians 2.2. I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's all about preaching Jesus. So must we be. So we've been called to do. If you were in Ukraine today, the best thing you could do for them would be to tell them about Jesus. The best thing. But you're in Canada, so here you will minister and serve. And the best thing you can do for anybody in Canada today is to tell them about Jesus. Now, why is that? Well, it's because the gospel deals with people's greatest problem. What's their greatest problem? Well, you can mention anything, but the Bible says the greatest problem is sin. And the gospel deals with people's greatest problem. So we must tell them about Jesus for that reason. And then we must tell them about Jesus because the gospel offers them their greatest blessing. Of all the blessings in the world, and God showers everybody with all kinds of blessings, but the greatest blessing of all is eternal life in Jesus Christ. And so the gospel offers them that, eternal life in Jesus Christ. That's why we must tell them about Jesus, because it's to be found nowhere else. Eternal life is to be had nowhere else. It's offered to sinners by no one else. 
And so we must tell them about Jesus. Secondly, tell them even if you are ordinary. Tell them even if you're ordinary. Now, you see, the shepherds were people just like us. They were just ordinary people. In Israel, they were not the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were, they were the righteous ones. They were the holy ones. They were the elite spiritually. And everybody looked up to the Pharisees. But not the shepherds. The shepherds were just ordinary people. The shepherds were like us. We're just ordinary people. We're not amongst the evangelical elite, you and I. And if there was a, if there was a lowest rung on the ladder of society in Israel, well, the shepherds were probably on that rung. Some people say that shepherds were not allowed to testify in court and go on and on about just what a despised group of people they were. There are others who contest that and say, well, if you think about the Old Testament, you know, David was a shepherd and so on and so forth, and they question whether the shepherds were as despised as we generally think. But regardless of how to settle that discussion, the fact of the matter is they were, at best, ordinary people. They were, in fact, just like us. And God chose them to be the first witnesses, the first evangelists, They're the first ones to go, and let me tell you about the baby that we saw. God shows them. And uh, we read in verse 20 of the same chapter that that, uh, they were ordinary shepherds, and then they returned. That is, they returned to their jobs. They returned to their sheep. Having seen Jesus in the manger, they didn't all of a sudden become uh, famous and go on a tour and, and write a book about, you know, we saw Jesus in the manger. Or start a blog or go on the talk circuit. No, they, they, they went back to their sheep. The smelly and stinky sheep. And that's where they presumably lived out their days. And these ordinary people were the witnesses of Christ. God has chosen, says Paul, the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. That's 1 Corinthians 1, 27 to 29. And that's how the church generally has grown. The church generally has grown through people like you and I through ordinary Christians being witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the amazing thing is that um, one historian writes, we cannot hesitate to believe that the Great Commission of Christianity was in reality accomplished by means of informal missionaries. People like you and I. You've not joined some agency. You're just an ordinary Christian, all of us. And that's how the church grows. One of the difficulties with the Billy Graham evangelistic crusades of the 20th century, one of the difficulties is that people seem to get the idea that that's what evangelism is all about. That that's how evangelism was always done. And that's the key to growing the church. It's not. The historic 
key to growing the church of Christ is ordinary Christian. It's Christians like you and I being uh, faithful to the responsibility, fulfilling the commission, and telling people about Jesus. That's how, down through the centuries, the church has grown. So yes, tell people about Jesus. And all of us, ordinary or not, tell people about Jesus. We are the ones who are the fishers of men. Thirdly, tell them prayerfully. Tell them prayerfully. Now, the shepherds seem to just explode into evangelistic activity. They go and they see, and on their way back to returning to the sheepfolds, they tell people and they tell everyone they run across, it seems. No great preparation at all. But then when you begin to look at the book of Acts and you see the church begin to grow, what you find is that all of the evangelistic and missionary activity from beginning to end is bathed in prayer. In Acts chapter 13, for instance, before the first missionaries are officially sent out, they're sent out after the church has been committing itself to fasting and prayer. And then you begin to read Paul's epistles, and you find that Paul is constantly asking for people to pray, constantly urging them to pray for missions and for evangelism. And again and again, you read verses like this, Colossians 4.3, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. That's just a constant theme throughout the New Testament evangelistic and mission activity, telling people about Jesus, is always bathed in prayer. So you and I have to pray. I'm saying to you, we have to tell people about Jesus, but we have to pray. We have to be a praying congregation more and more and more. We have to be a praying congregation. We must pray in our prayer meetings, and we must pray personally. We must pray for opportunities to witness. We must pray while we are taking advantage of those opportunities to witness. We have to be Nehemiah-like, and Nehemiah uh, prayed to God, and he spoke to the king. Well, that's how we witness. We know our weakness. We know our sufficiency is of God. And so before we witness and while we're witnessing, we're praying. And then we pray after we've witnessed. And we come and we tell people at prayer meeting, well, I had an opportunity to talk to so-and-so about Christ and to sow a seed. So please pray. Pray for the Spirit of God to, to germinate that seed, not allow the devil to snatch it away. And so we pray. And we're prayerful and we bathe every effort to tell people about Jesus in prayer because we know that only God gives the growth. That's 1 Corinthians 3, verse 7. The succinctness of your presentation, the earnestness with which you told them, the cogency of your arguments will not cause them to respond in faith. They're dead. I mean, you might as well go to a graveyard and talk to the people in the graves. Your effectiveness is not effective with dead people. And only God, Paul says, can give the growth. A man named Samuel Zwamer, uh, I think he's one of Peter Pickard's heroes. Zwamer said this, the history of missions is the history of answered prayer. So you look at these great missionaries, 
and see some of the tremendous responses that eventually, after years, came about. It's a response to the prayers of the saints. And so we tell them, and we tell them prayerfully. Fourthly, we tell them through all available means. We tell them through all available means. Verse 17 says that they went and they made known. They made known what was told them about Christ. So basically just saying they went and they spoke to them. Now you may not feel entirely comfortable doing that. And you get all tongue-tied and, and uh, well, most people resonate with that kind of struggle. And you're not comfortable with just telling people because um, of who you are and personality and so on and so forth. And, and to be honest, that's, that's fine. The, the important thing is that somehow you have to get communication, you have to get information across. Somehow you have to get gospel information to them. You have to do that somehow. So what Frances Ridley Havergal did, she who wrote Take My Life and Let It Be and a number of other wonderful hymns, what she used to do is always, always carry along with her tracts and books. Always having some tracts and gospel tracts, gospel books that somehow if she either doesn't feel able to explain or it's too rushed or, or something, she can just say, here, take that, read that. Right? So... You can do that. No, I'm too shy. I understand shy. It's, it takes a miracle of grace almost to get me up here every Sunday. I understand shy. But you know what? The Lord can, can use a gospel tract, can use a gospel book. Or you can listen to Spurgeon. Spurgeon says this. He's talking about the early days of his Christian life. He says, I never felt so much earnestness after the souls of my fellow creatures as when I first loved the Savior's name. And though I couldn't preach, wouldn't be saying that for very long, though I couldn't preach and never thought I should be able to testify to the multitude, I used to write texts on little scraps of paper and then drop them everywhere so that some poor creature might pick them up and receive them as a message of mercy to their souls. So, you know, you might risk getting picked up for littering, but what he's saying is, I just dropped texts of scripture wherever I went in the hopes that somehow in the providence of God, somebody might, might pick them up. And speaking of gospel tracts, uh, there was a biography written of Martin Holt, who some of you will know and remember, and um, the author says that he went to visit Martin in the hospital in um, one of the several occasions in the later parts of his life when he was in hospital and um, uh, Martin had ultimate questions and several other gospel tracts under the sheet. And so whenever some unsuspecting medical person would walk into the room and try to tend to him and care for him, he'd whip one out and say, well, here, take this, and, and try to tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, do something, you know, do something to somehow communicate the gospel, invite them to church, uh, uh, give them uh, a good book, send them a link to some sermon that you know, maybe a, a MacArthur sermon or something like that. You think, well, this is, the, this is a really good evangelistic sermon. Well, send them a link to that kind of question. Send them to our website. There's Ultimate Questions is, is available there. But do something that suits you and your personality. 
that will be able to communicate the gospel. So tell them through all the available means. I don't think there's been a, a period of history where Christians have, have had more means available whereby they can communicate the gospel. So let's take advantage of that. Fourth, uh, number five, tell them. See, we're, we're making progress. I told you these were reasonably short. <clears throat> tell them even when you're afraid. Now, I don't know if they were afraid to tell. I know they were afraid of the angels, and who wouldn't be? Whether they were afraid to go and tell these people about Jesus, I don't know. But I do know that Paul was afraid at times. I know that um, in Ephesians 6, Paul says, Pray for me that words may be given me uh, in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. So Paul says, Please pray for me. And pray that I will be given boldness to speak. Now, we need boldness to speak. And when you tell people about Christ, you find that your knees tend to knock and, 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 and you, fought, you find yourself shaking almost because you're so scared. And it doesn't mean, you know, to be bold doesn't mean that all the fear is taken away. The boldness means that as you're shaking, you still do what you want to do. You still tell them about Christ. And you're nervous and your hands are shaking and... But you still tell them, and God gives boldness. And that's what Paul's praying for. He says, I get scared, so pray for me that I might have boldness. In Acts chapter 18, Jesus says to Paul, he says, do not be afraid, Paul. So Paul is fearfully anticipating ministry in the city of Corinth. And Jesus speaks to him and says, don't be afraid, Paul. Do not be silent, Paul. No one's going to attack you, Paul. Now we think, you know... I'm not going to say anything because they're going to attack me, even verbally. Well, Jesus says to Paul, nobody's going to attack you. Just, just, just speak up. He, uh, he knew fear the way you and I do. What is it that overcomes fear? What is it that overcomes the fear that you and I really understand? Well, first of all, love for God. Love for God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. There's this, this holy, childlike, reverential awe before the holy God that drives us to want to see him glorified. We love him. And so we want to, we want to tell others about him because we're so captivated by him. And when you love somebody, you want to speak about them. And you want to speak about them to others. And I recall, this, this actually happened. This is not made up for preacher purposes. When our first child was born, it, it was late at night. I was on my way home. It was late at night. It had been a long time. Um, uh, the whole delivery process had been rather extended. And, and so it was late at night, and I was on my way home, and I stopped at McDonald's, at McDonald's to get a burger before going home. And I'm, I'm shy by nature, and I don't, I, I don't talk to strangers. I really don't. I'm trying to be better at it, but I, I just don't do that. And it was like, at the time, very, very difficult to talk to strangers. But I was in the McDonald's, and I, I gave her my order, and, and I said, we just had a baby. <laughs> And she, having little or no interest, said, do you, 
do you want fries with that? <laughs> Honestly, that sounds like I made it up, but she really didn't care, and all she was interested in was, do you want fries? Well, what drove this shy person to speak was love. What drives you to speak about Christ is love. They may not respond well, but you'll do it. And then love for sinners. That's what overcomes the fear. It's love for God. It's love for sinners. Because you actually believe the doctrine of hell. You actually believe that these people are going to go to hell. And you care about them. And you want to rescue them. It's that great old gospel song, Rescue the Perishing. That's what you want to do. You care about sinners. And so even if you're scared and even if your knees are knocking, you still tell them. I had a friend who cared about me. And I remember him telling me the gospel. I remember him inviting me out to church. And I, I, can, I can still hear him and I can still see him. And I know exactly where I was sitting. I know the room I was in. I know which way I was facing in that room. So when I was 17 years old. And I, I can remember the quivering in his voice as he spoke to me. And he told me about Christ because he cared. He's a, a professor in the seminary now, by the way, and, and I'm here. So we tell them even when we're afraid, you know. And then, number six, we tell them with hope. We tell them with hope. Because sometimes you think about the people that, oh, you should witness to, and you say, well, you know, they're not going to listen. They're, they're too hard. I mean, they're seriously opposed to the gospel. And really, you're right. <laughs> you're right. As I said earlier, it's, a, it's like going into a graveyard, into a cemetery, and trying to tell the people, now, let's stand up, everyone. It's, it's, as, it's as useless as that. You're really on a fool's errand, you know. The church, <laughs> you, I mean, you wouldn't be able to start a business like this. Now, start a business and say, well, our raison d'etre and our purpose and our whole goal as a company is to do that which we know will not happen, which we know we can't do. That's not a good way to start. But that's what God says. He's now you go and you do this. Just turn to, uh, to Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37, verses 1 to 6. Listen to this. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out, of the, out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. They hadn't even just died. I mean, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, Lord, you know, I don't want to say the wrong thing here. I mean, the natural response is, of course not. But Lord, you know. And then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, Oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. 
And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So God can make dry, I mean very dry bones, he can make them live. And so God can make dead sinners, very dead sinners, although there's no degree of death, he can make dead sinners live. How does he do it? Well, Acts 17, 14. Paul speaks to a dead woman, and the Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So that's how God does it. He gives them a new heart so that they can receive. He gives them a life so that they can respond. He gives them repentance and faith so that they can turn. It looks useless. We feel as if there's no hope. But we have a sovereign God. Robert Morrison was first missionary to China. And on his way to China, he's going alone. And he has no companions with him. And somebody asks him, Mr. Morrison, do you really expect that you will make an impression on the idolatry of the great Chinese empire? His response was, no, sir, I do not. I expect God will, though. And that's the perspective we have, that God does the work. We sow the seed, he causes it to germinate. So we tell them with hope because we have a sovereign God. Number seven, we tell them graciously. We tell them graciously. When I was a young Christian, I, I witnessed uh, in a very argumentative way, a very brash, very aggressive, a very uh, a win the argument kind of way, a bash them into submission kind of way. I know more than you do, so listen to me kind of way. And in the, the kindness of God, uh, some friends became Christians, and some just became angry. And I don't think I really had read, perhaps, what Paul says in Colossians 4, 5, and 6, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer each person. Be very gracious. I read that um, Emma Darwin was very gracious. Emma Darwin was uh, Charles Darwin's wife, and um, in Paul Johnson's biography of, of Charles Darwin, he says that, he, that Emma had always been and remained a sincere and trusting Christian in dogma and a curious combination of nonconformist and, and Anglican. And so she seems to have been a real, a true Christian. And she, at one point, she wrote a letter to her husband. And in Johnson's book, you can read the letter. It's remarkably gracious. She writes a letter to him pleading with him not to leave the Bible and truth and the gospel and Christ and pushing it aside the way he was doing. He was publishing his Origin of the Species. And, and she wrote 
begging to him, begging him not to, not to push all this aside. It's wonderfully gracious. And uh, apparently he appreciated, well, he didn't respond in faith, certainly as far as we know, but um, he appreciated the grace with which she spoke. And he, he responded to her and he said, when I am dead, know this, that I have many times kissed and cried over this letter. Well, be gracious. As I said, especially when I was younger, I turned so many people off because I was just, just unpleasant in the way I presented the gospel. Don't do that. Be gracious and kind and thoughtful and sensitive and tender and know when to speak and know when not to speak. You know, Wilberforce, um, William Wilberforce went to visit a friend of his who was, who was dying. And um, he, um, he went and realized that this man was suffering greatly. And so he just sat there in silence. He just, it was just with this man. And he had already witnessed to him many times, and, but now he just went and sat with him. Well, anyway, uh, a f- another friend comes in and walks into the room and, and says to the, the sick man, he says, how are you doing? And um, the man says, I'm doing well enough considering that Wilberforce is sitting here telling me that I'm going to hell. Well, Wilberforce had said nothing of the kind. He hadn't uttered a word. But what he had said in the past still spoke. It still spoke. And now we just sat in silence to be kind. But the witnessing of the past was still being used. So we want to be sensitive and kind and gracious and tender. And lastly, tell them whoever they are. doesn't matter who they are. You'll notice that uh, they went away and they made known the same. Uh, They just told people whoever those people might have been. One of the great themes of Luke is that um, Jesus is the savior of the world. He's the savior of the world. If you look at Luke chapter 3 and verse 6, you read this. Luke chapter 3 and verse 6. Now, look at verse, let's start at verse 3. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. Now, the other Gospels quote that same passage. But look at verse 6. It's only Luke who quotes that last little bit. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Because that's part of Luke's theme. It's one of his great emphases is that this is for everybody. And so you see this in the whole gospel. It's for everyone. It's not that everyone's going to be saved, because that's patently untrue. The Bible makes that very clear. But anyone can be saved. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter how poor or how rich. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your social status. The gospel is proclaimed to everybody. And that's what we we do. We tell the gospel 
to everybody. The gospel is for the world. Did you read the bulletin? Did you read about that Chinese lady who goes and she stands at the gate and she holds up his side? I thought, that's magnificent. And how many times has she been there? Like 20 times, something like that? I thought, that's fabulous. So what it seems is that the leaders of China, like they're not excluded, you know. The gospel isn't barred to them because a Christian can go and say, well, you need to repent and believe. You need to be saved. And so the terrible leaders of the wicked nations of the world, they're not excluded. The gospel's for, for everyone. And so we want to tell everybody. So tell them about Jesus. Even if you're just an ordinary Christian, tell them. And tell them prayerfully. Tell them and use all the, the means that are at our disposal. Tell them even when you're afraid, but always be hopeful because God's sovereign. Remember to be gracious and tell oh, whoever you run across. I want to set implications to you now by asking you two questions. The first question is, is who are you going to tell? Who are you going to tell? So the message is, tell them. Who are you going to tell? Perhaps you see a face in your mind. Is there a, is there a name that occurs to you? Is, is it a neighbor, or is it a friend, or is it a colleague? Or is it going to be some random encounter? Who are you going to tell? Or, or will you sink into your grave with your mouth shut? Who are you going to tell about the fact that there's a Savior for them? He's the Savior of the world. And he's willing to save them. That's the first question. The second question is, how are you going to respond? How are you going to respond? You're not a Christian. How are you going to respond? Because you've been told about Jesus. You've been told about the Savior. I've been telling you about Jesus. How are you going to respond to that? You know that, that he's Jesus, the Son of God. You know that he's the Savior sent into the world. You know he loves sinners. You've been told that. How are you going to respond to that? You know that he's the Savior of the world. You've read about that in chapter 2 here. You've read that he's, he's come to save sinners just like you. How are you going to respond to that? And you know you've been told that he's the only hope. You know you can't work your way to heaven. What are you going to do? And you know the Bible says you need to repent and believe. How are you going to respond today? Are you going to say, yes, I will repent and believe so that I might be saved? Or are you going to say, no, I won't? You're going to do one of those two. Right now, you're going to do one of the two. Which is it? 
What a dangerous thing it is to say, no, I won't. Infinitely better to say, like Peter did, Lord Jesus, save me. You know he wants to save you. And you know he's able to save you. And you know he's eager to save you. You've been told that as well. How are you going to respond to this? Whether you're here or whether you're listening, how are you going to respond now? The Bible says today is the day of salvation. It's not tomorrow. You may not see tomorrow. It's today. I'll tell you how the Bible says you ought to respond. Just like that that man in Acts chapter 16 What must I do to be saved? Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. You'll be saved. That's what he does. And he's saved. The Bible says, respond like that. And you'll be with Christ forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege of of listening to your word. We read it. We hear what it says. Now we pray for grace that we might respond as we ought. Lord God, save souls and stir our hearts to reach the